Our scripture reading this evening is found in Isaiah chapter 40. In your pew Bible, you can find this on page 828 after we read from the Word of God, which we believe is given by inspiration and is infallible and inerrant. We'll also be reading a section from one of our confessions, which we believe faithfully summarizes the teachings of the Word of God, the Heidelberg Catechism, Lord's Day 1. And in your forms and prayers book in the pew rack, you can find this reference on page 201. We read first from the Word of God, Isaiah 40. Uh, we want to read the chapter in its entirety. And you notice the theme, which we've also sung, of, of comfort. And of course, that ties in with the Heidelberg Catechism, and particularly Lord's Day 1. But notice that while Isaiah 40 begins with this emphasis on comfort, it also describes the futility of the nations, and by contrast, uh, the renewed strength of those who wait on the Lord. And so we read from Isaiah 40. Comfort, yes, comfort my people, says your God. Speak comfort to Jerusalem, and cry out to her that her warfare is ended, that her iniquity is pardoned, for she has received from the Lord's hand double for all her sins." The voice of one crying in the wilderness, prepare the way of the Lord, make straight in the desert a highway for our God. Every valley shall be exalted and every mountain and hill brought low. The crooked places shall be made straight and the rough places smooth. The glory of the Lord shall be revealed and all flesh shall see it together, for the mouth of the Lord has spoken. The voice said, cry out, and he said, what shall I cry? All flesh is grass, and all its loveliness is like the flower of the field. The grass withers, the flower fades, because the breath of the Lord blows upon it. Surely the people are grass. The grass withers, the flower fades, but the word of our God stands forever. O Zion, you who bring good tidings, get up into the high mountains. O Jerusalem, you who bring good tidings, lift up your voice with strength. Lift it up, be not afraid. Say to the cities of Judah, Behold your God. Behold, the Lord God shall come with a strong hand, and his arm shall rule for him. Behold, his reward is with him, and his work before him. He will feed his flock like a shepherd. He will gather the lambs with his arm, and carry them in his bosom, and gently lead those who are with young. Who has measured the waters in the hollow of his hand, measured heaven with a span, and calculated the dust of the earth in a measure, weighed the mountains in scales and the hills in a balance? Who has directed the Spirit of the Lord, or as his counselor has taught him? With whom did he take counsel, and who instructed him, and taught him in the path of justice? Who taught him knowledge, and showed him the way of understanding? Behold, the nations are as a drop in a bucket, and are counted as the small dust on the scales. Look, he lifts up the isles as a very little thing, and Lebanon is not sufficient to burn, nor its beasts sufficient for a burnt offering. All nations before him are as nothing, and they are counted by him less than nothing and worthless. To whom then will you liken God? Or what likeness will you compare to him? The workman molds an image, the goldsmith overspreads it with gold, and the silversmith casts silver chains. Whoever is too impoverished for such a contribution chooses a tree that will not rot. He seeks for himself a skillful workman to repair a carved image that will not totter. Have you not known? Have you not heard? Has it not been told you from the beginning? 
Have you not understood from the foundations of the earth? It is he who sits above the circle of the earth, and its inhabitants are like grasshoppers, who stretches out the heavens like a curtain and spreads them out like a tent to dwell in. He brings the princes to nothing. He makes the judges of the earth useless. Scarcely shall they be planted. Scarcely shall they be sown. Scarcely shall their stock take root in the earth, when he will also blow on them, and they will wither. And the whirlwind will take them away like stubble. To whom then will you liken me? Or to whom shall I be equal, says the Holy One? Lift up your eyes on high, and see who has created these things, who brings out their host by number. He calls them all by name. By the greatness of his might and the strength of his power, not one is missing. Why do you say, O Jacob, and speak, O Israel, my way is hidden from the Lord, and my just claim is passed over by my God? Have you not known? Have you not heard? The everlasting God, the Lord, the creator of the ends of the earth, neither faints nor is weary. His understanding is unsearchable. He gives power to the weak, and to those who have no might, he increases strength. Even the youth shall faint and be weary, and the young men shall utterly fall. But those who wait on the Lord shall renew their strength. They shall mount up with wings like eagles. They shall run and not be weary. They shall walk and not faint. And thus far our reading from the Word of God. We then turn to Heidelberg Catechism, Lord's Day 1, and question 1 begins by asking us, what is your only comfort in life and in death? And the answer, that I am not my own, but belong body and soul and life and in death to my faithful Savior, Jesus Christ. He has fully paid for all my sins with his precious blood and has delivered me from the tyranny of the devil. He also watches over me in such a way that not a hair can fall from my head without the will of my Father in heaven. In fact, all things must work together for my salvation. Because I belong to him, Christ, by his Holy Spirit, also assures me of eternal life and makes me wholeheartedly willing and ready from now on to live for him. And if you flip the page, you'll notice that question two of Lord's Day 1 asks, how many things must you know to live and die in the joy of this comfort? And the answer, three. First, how great my sin and misery are. Second, how I am delivered from all my sins and misery. Third, how I am to thank God for such deliverance. A congregation of the Lord Jesus Christ, if we were to pause in the midst of the busyness of our everyday life and step back for a moment and evaluate the actions of humanity, the actions of men and women, the action of even the boys and the girls, we would see that much, if not all of it, is driven by this desire for comfort. We speak of the comfort of our homes, implying perhaps in the summer a cooler temperature, uh, in the winter a warmer temperature. We speak of comfortable chairs, comfortable uh, furniture, maybe even just a comfortable atmosphere. Uh, we also speak of this in regards to our clothing. We say that this apparel is uncomfortable, so we choose not to wear it. And in contrast, we might say, well, these shoes are very comfortable, and so they become our favorites very quickly. And we also brought it out to social situations. We might say, well, I am uncomfortable in their presence, or I am uncomfortable going here or going there. And in contrast, we say, when I am with this company, they make me feel very comfortable. So there is this quest even in those everyday 
situations of comfort, but also there's at a deeper level a quest for comfort, a a, a quest in our very soul, a desire, an ongoing desire to find peace, to find rest, to find a measure of tranquility. In the strength of our youth, we long for this, but also as the infirmities of all our elderly years begin to creep in, we long to find true, solid, lasting comfort. I want to ask you tonight, as I ask myself, have you found comfort? Tonight, as you sit here, as you hear these words, either in person or as they reach you by the radio or through the internet, can you honestly say that as for you, yourself, you have an unshakable comfort for time and for eternity, no matter what tomorrow or next week or next year brings. Well, it is my wonderful opportunity this evening to proclaim to all who hear these words that there is an available comfort that is easily attained and that can be eternally possessed. But that comfort is found outside of ourselves And that comfort is found only in the triune God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. And so we turn our attention this evening to this theme, the quest for comfort. And we'll notice, first of all, as we unfold this theme following Isaiah 40, and we'll be referencing a few other Scripture passages as they are summarized, the truth of them is summarized in Lord's Day 1. We'll notice, first of all, the reason for the quest And secondly, the simplicity of the quest, and then thirdly, the answer for the quest. So, the quest, and by the quest, we mean humanity's quest. Old men, old women, young men, young women, everyone in between, every member of the human race is on this quest, on this desire, on this road to try to attain comfort. We'll notice the reason, and then the simplicity, and then the answer for this quest. The reason for the quest could be summarized with one word misery. The reason people seek comfort is because of the reality, the painful reality of discomfort. Again, even on a practical level, boys and girls, if you're outgrowing your shoes, although I know many of you young boys, you wear out your shoes before you outgrow them, but if you have a pair of shoes that are becoming too small, you might say to your mother, say, mom, my shoes aren't comfortable anymore. My feet are growing big. I need a new pair of shoes because these pair of shoes are uncomfortable. And so our quest for comfort is always driven by the painful reality of a lack of comfort. And when it comes to the bigger picture of life, we are confronted by the realities of misery. I'm not a betting man, but if I were, I would dare say that I would put a bet that if you turn on one of the major news channels right now, you would find a story connected with human misery on one level or another. Some injustice, some war or rumor of war, uh, some social ill, uh, some fear of disease or the rise of crime, homelessness, joblessness, uh, fears of inflation. Uh, You'll hear much talk about the upcoming election cycle and what might be or what could be or what perhaps might be. And all of these stories represent a reality of human life that we live amidst misery. 
pain, suffering. And maybe at a closer, more personal level, uh, if you were to reveal what's going on in your own heart and in your own relationships, uh, there'd be evidence also of misery, the misery of broken relationships, the misery of disappointments, the misery uh, of loss, of pain, and of suffering. You can think also of abuse, of untimely death. Time could go on and on and on to describe the reality of misery, but we believe that we have just identified a few examples that serve to illustrate the reality of universal misery that drives us in our quest for comfort. But we do well to use Scripture to look even deeper at an ultimate cause for the symptoms of misery. Why is it that there is misery in the world? Why is it that nations rise up against nations? Why is it that dictators seek to uh, exercise a tyranny over human beings? Why is it that there is disease and death and broken relationships? To speak very pointedly, why is it that there is murder in the streets and divorce in the homes? and sadness in the hearts. Now, we want to be careful that not every instance of such things is a direct correlation to a specific sin. We're not saying that everyone who is diagnosed with cancer has that cancer as a result of some specific sin that they committed in their life, but we are saying this, that misery is connected to humanity's sin against God, because prior to mankind's rebellious fall into sin, there was no misery. Adam and Eve lived in perfect fellowship one with another and perfect fellowship with their Lord, with their God, with their Creator, enjoying fellowship with Him and an uninterrupted experience of joy. But then Satan came and tempted humanity, and Eve listened and Adam followed, and then their eyes were opened, and they knew their sin, and they knew their misery. And the ultimate cause of misery is mankind, humanity's alienation from God because of their sin. That's the ultimate cause of misery. We find such stated very plainly in Isaiah 59, verse 2, where the Lord speaks to the people of Israel. He says, your iniquities have separated you from your God. Now, you and I can pretend that it's not true, or I might say it this way, the human race can pretend it's not true, but we have been created in the image of God, and our hearts, as Augustine said, our hearts are restless until they find their rest in God. Try as they might, the human race can never live peacefully apart from God. And that's why the further one gets from God, the further one gets from a reconciled relationship with the Father through the Son by the Spirit, the more evidence of misery that you will find and the more angst of soul that you will find. Because you and I have been created in the image of God for the purpose of enjoying fellowship with God both now and forevermore. But iniquity or sin or rebellious transgressions, including our inclinations, our thoughts, our desires, and our actions, have separated us from God. And now subsequent Lord's Days, Lord's Days 2, 3, and 4, will, will descend ever deeper into considering the misery of man. Suffice it for tonight to identify that the misery of man is alienation from God. That's the ultimate cause of man's miserable condition. And because man is alienated from God, he has this inescapable quest 
to try to find some measure of comfort. Well, where is such comfort to be found? That begins to transition us into our second point, the simplicity of the quest. Many ignore, many deny where comfort is to be found, and they look to other avenues. And and congregation as a pastor, but you also as Christians, you know, you, you see this, and it's the most disturbing thing to see individuals plunge themselves ever deeper into a bottomless pit of an attempt to satisfy the hungering and the thirsting of their souls apart from God. And here I want to cross-reference this evening uh, to the passage found in Ecclesiastes 2, because what we have in Ecclesiastes 2 is an inspired account uh, of a human being's attempt to find comfort apart from God. And the sad thing is that the vast majority of the human race, while recognizing their desire for comfort, they try to satisfy that spiritual thirst for comfort from the wells of, first of all, practical hedonism. Hedonism is a word that just simply refers to self-seeking pleasure. So many a person in the world, and sadly many a person within the church also, seeks to satisfy the longings of their soul, seeks to bring some comfort to their soul by saturating their soul with self-seeking pleasure. Allow me to just simply read Ecclesiastes 2, 1 through 11, and you'll see here the evidence of a person who is seeking to quiet his soul with pleasure. I said in my heart, Solomon speaking here, come now, I will test you with mirth, another word for simple gladness, therefore enjoy pleasure. Doesn't that sound like the world today? Doesn't that sound like many in the church today? Come, my heart, I will test you with gladness, with mirth, therefore enjoy pleasure. What summarizes our culture more than that? Enjoy pleasure. And so Solomon sets out to test us. I said of laughter, madness, and of mirth, what does it accomplish? Notice already he's indicating the sum result of it all. I searched in my heart how to gratify my flesh with wine while guiding my heart with wisdom and how to lay hold on folly till I might see what was good for the sons of men to do under heaven all the days of their lives. In essence, he's saying, I tested myself to see what men should do during the days of their lives. And so he set out in verse 4, I made my works great, and indeed he did. I built myself houses and planted myself vineyards. I made myself gardens and orchards, and I planted all kinds of fruit trees in them. I made myself water pools from which to water the growing trees of the grove. I acquired male and female servants and had servants born in my house. Yes, I had greater possessions of herds and flocks than all who were in Jerusalem before me. I also gathered for myself silver and gold and the special treasures of kings and of the provinces. I acquired male and female singers, the delights of the sons of men, and musical instruments of all kinds. So I became great and excelled more than all who were before me in Jerusalem. Also my wisdom remained with me. Whatever my eyes desired, I did not keep from them. I did not withhold my heart from any pleasure, for my heart rejoiced in all my labor. And this was my reward from all my labor. So to stop there and step back, and you have here a very knowledgeable man, a very successful man, a man who had homes, elaborate homes, comfortable homes, you might say. He had his primary residence. He had his summer home. He had his vacation home. He had his vacation, uh, perhaps not on the lake, but he had built lakes 
in the midst of his home, surrounded by trees, occupied by servants. Whatever his flesh wanted, there it was. Whatever his mind wanted, there it was. Served by servants, surrounded by choirs. He had reached the pinnacle of human achievement. No man before him would have attained as much success as he had, and no man after him would match his success. But then his wisdom gives the evaluation in verse 11. Then I looked on all the works that my hands had done and on the labor in which I had toiled, and indeed all was vanity and grasping for the wind. There was no profit under the sun. Now that word vanity, it does not mean meaningless. It means fleeting. He reached out with his hands and he built houses and acquired material possessions and had all kinds of acclaim and fame. But then he realized he couldn't hold on to it indefinitely. The richest man in the world will die like the poorest man in the world. Oh, sure, maybe their circumstances will be different. But the end result will be the same. And Solomon wrestled with that. And all those who would seek to find comfort for their soul in the path of practical hedonism must reckon with the fact that it will not satisfy your soul. Why is the suicide rate nearly just as high among those who have reached the heights of popularity in Hollywood as the homeless on the street? Because in many ways, the more a man attains, the more it confronts him with the reality that it cannot satisfy. Well, then Solomon says, perhaps it's not in practical hedonism, perhaps it's with what we would call secular humanism. You know, many a person looks for comfort in the life of secular humanism. What is humanism? It is a worldview, the belief that humanity is capable of morality and self-fulfillment without belief in God. And isn't this, by and large, the tune that we hear from the intellectual experts of our day? That humanity is the source of the answer for humanity's problems? Isn't this, by and large, what many a politician runs a campaign on? That they and their group have the answer to humanity's ills? Isn't this what one regime promises to its subjects? That they are the answer to humanity's problem? Isn't this the constant cry we hear from sociologists within our day? Oh, if only humanity can do this and do that, then we can eradicate all of the misery in the world, and yet this experiment has been going on for thousands of years. And is humanity any more satisfied today than it was a thousand years ago or two thousand years ago? By and large, our culture is very, very similar to the culture of the New Testament era. Humanity still has this unquenching thirst for true, solid, lasting comfort. And again, just allow me to read Solomon's second test, so to speak. Uh, In Ecclesiastes 2, verse 18, Then I hated all my labor in which I had toiled under the sun, because I must leave it to the man who will come after me. And isn't that the plight of the rich man who's rich apart from God? The more he possesses, the more he realizes he will have to give away. And so Solomon says, 
Who knows whether the person who follows after will be wise or a fool? And so in verse 19, he turns his heart and despaired of all the labor in which he had toiled under the sun. For there is a man whose labor is with wisdom, knowledge, and skill, and he must leave his heritage to a man who has not labored for it. This also is vanity and a great evil. For what has man for all his labor and for the striving of his heart with which he toiled under the sun? For all his days are sorrowful and his work burdensome. Even in the night his heart takes no rest. This also is vanity. And this all was said, if you look in verse 14, of the wise man. The wise man's eyes are in his head, but the fool walks in darkness. Yet I myself perceived that the same event happens to them all. And so again, you can think of some of the common miseries of human existence. You think of disease, you think of dysfunctional homes, you think of the breakup of marriages, and it occurs to the wise, to the influencer, to the socially elite, just as it does to the man on the street. And I bring these things out just to remind all of us of the futility, of the absolute futility the emptiness of seeking ultimate comfort apart from God. And sadly, the world is filled with such persons, encouraged uh, by our secular culture, also perhaps cheered on uh, by unfaithful ministries from churches, saying, yes, the answer is in yourself. The answer is in your own attainments. Well, tonight, Based upon the word of God from this pulpit comes forth a different, measure, uh, different message. The answer is not in yourself. What is your only comfort in life and in death that I am not my own? Now we certainly are thankful for the good gifts that God gives us. And Solomon points that out too. Uh, you'll notice uh, what he says there, for example, in verse 24. Nothing is better for a man that he should eat and drink and that his soul should enjoy good in his labor. But to do that, knowing that, one is reconciled with God. You see, that's the simple way to find true and lasting comfort. As is found in Ecclesiastes 12, verse 13 and 14, uh, there Solomon reflects upon his grand experiment of the purpose of life, and he says, let us hear the conclusion of the whole matter. Fear God and keep his commandments, for this is man's all. So what is the answer for humanity's misery. Fear God. Fear God with the fear of faith. Now you might say, well, those two words seem to be contradictory, but they're not if you understand the fear here rightly. This fear is not some trembling fear of divine wrath, but this fear is the reverence of walking with God in the steps of repentance and faith. And I was always tempting when you come to Lord's Day 1 as a minister to try to begin to elaborate all of the wonderful concepts and truths that are contained, but that's what the subsequent Lord's Days are for. And so we need to exercise restraint, first of all, for time's sake, but also so that we don't transgress upon the following Lord's Days. But you notice that the focus of comfort is a Trinitarian focus, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. And the fact that through the work of Christ, a person belongs in a reconciled relationship with the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. And then can enjoy the Father's paternal care, and can enjoy the Son's mediatorial work, and can enjoy the Spirit's 
assurance, and internal confirmation. That's the simple explanation for where there is true and lasting comfort. And that's also echoed by contrast in Isaiah 48, verse 22. There the Lord says, there is no peace for the wicked. And by contrast, as we see in Isaiah 40, comfort, comfort my people. Declare to her that her warfare is ended. In similar words, you could say, declare to her that her misery has been dealt with, the misery of her sin, the misery of her rebellion. Her warfare has been dealt with through the redemptive, atoning, sacrificial work of the Lord Jesus Christ, obtaining peace for all of those who receive the Lord Jesus Christ in faith. And so we can make these two plain statements, and we encourage you to consider them. There is no lasting comfort apart from communion with God. Imagine you build the biggest house in the world and you fill it with the finest of furnishings and you surround yourself with all of the pleasures that this life has to offer. Nothing that your eye sees and desires do you keep from obtaining. What will it all matter when time gives way to eternity? You can think of the parable that the Lord Jesus Christ told of the rich man who considered his increasing wealth and said, well, I better tear down my barns and build bigger ones. And the Lord, in the middle of the night, said, you fool. Your soul will be required of you. And at that moment, what is it that will bring us comfort? The ability to say in sincerity, I am not my own, but belong, body and soul, to my faithful Savior, Jesus Christ, who has fully paid for all of my sins. And that, my dear listener, is where comfort is found. You see, that is, in our third point, briefly, the answer. But to understand the idea of this comfort, we need to understand the meaning of this word. Comfort isn't just a relaxing sense of ease. Comfort in the original language of the Heidelberg Catechism has this idea of confidence. What is your only confidence? What is your only certainty? And if you step back and if you analyze, I had the opportunity, which I don't have very often, to, to sit in airports this weekend and, and to watch the people coming and going. And I'm not sure that there are many people who have confidence in life. Now, some have an arrogance. Many have a dismay. But I'm not sure there are many people who have a confidence, a certainty for time and for eternity. You see, that's what our instructors in the Heidelberg want to get to. What is your confidence? Is your confidence based on yourself? your confidence based on circumstances? Confidence based on nations? All of that is shifting sand that will not sustain the test of time and eternity. But what this comfort is, is a confidence or a fortitude of strength. 
That comes from knowing that a person has protection, spiritual protection in life and in death. It is a spiritual confidence that can carry one even through the valley of the shadow of death. It's the spiritual confidence that is expressed by the Apostle Paul in Romans 8 when he says, For what can separate us from the love of God, which is in Christ Jesus? And his implied answer is nothing. You see, that's the essence of confidence. They say, sure, the world seems to be falling apart, but I still have confidence because I know that I belong to my faithful Savior, Jesus Christ. Sure, maybe even my own personal life may be falling apart. Maybe even my physical health is falling apart. Maybe my plans for the future are falling apart. Maybe they've fallen apart so severely that I don't even have plans for the future. Yet, the Christian living by faith can say, I still have confidence. Not in my plans. Not in earthly relationships. Not in earthly helps. But in my faithful Savior, Jesus Christ. Well, how does one attain this comfort And in that well-known second question and answer, what three things must you know? You know, there are a lot of things you can know. And there are many things that you should know. But there are three things you must know. And at times when I struggled academically, I took a certain amount of relief in knowing that there are only three things you must know. The first, my misery. The fact that I'm a sinner. The second, the way of deliverance based upon the person and the work of the Lord Jesus Christ received by faith. And the third, that I am to show thankfulness to God for the deliverance that he has accomplished on my behalf in the work of his Son. Those three things. That's the key to comfort. Now you might say, well, this sounds awfully antiquated. This sounds like it was written over 450 years ago. But I would submit to you that this is the most relevant message that the world needs to hear. Because when you look at all the people walking to and fro with a sense of alarm written in their eyes and in their faces and their posture and their body language. As you listen to the constant 24-7 loop cycle of news, even as you tune your ear into many of the sentiments within the church and you hear this buzz of despair, what the Christian What the person in life needs now more than ever is the simple gospel truth. Comfort, yes, comfort my people, says the Lord. Declare to her that her warfare is ended. O Zion, say, behold our God, the God of redemption, the God of promise, the God of comfort. Amen. Our Father in heaven, We thank you for speaking in your word clearly 
to our most basic need. You have created us for yourself, and our souls indeed are restless until we find our rest in reconciliation with you, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. And so whether we've heard these words as summarized in our Heidelberg Catechism many, many, many a time, or whether we're hearing them for the first time, would you seal the biblical truth upon our hearts that there is comfort, not to be found in practical hedonism, nor in secular humanism, but in reconciliation with the Father through the Son by the Holy Spirit. To your name's honor and glory, we pray this for Jesus' sake. Amen.